Hi, friends. You're listening to Midlife Plot Twists. I'm your host, Lucy Baber. This podcast is for anyone who's gotten to their 30s, 40s, or 50s and realized life isn't always as linear as we expected. Tune in monthly as I interview guests about their own midlife plot twists and hear how they've navigated all of life's unexpected twists and turns. Hi, everyone. It's Lucy Baber here, and this is a big couple of firsts for me today for the podcast. The first reason it's a first is we're doing video today. And so I'm figuring this out. We had a little bit of technological troubleshooting to do in the beginning, but hopefully you'll get to see our faces as part of this podcast. The second first is Sharon Fisher is my guest today. And this is my first guest that I have not had, as far as I could tell, a direct line of relationships with. I've interviewed people who I didn't know before, but each time they were referred to me directly from friends of friends. And so I'm really excited because Sharon found me. I haven't even asked how you found me yet, (laughs) but thank you for finding me. And I'm excited about what we're going to talk about today. So since I don't know Sharon personally, I'm going to let Sharon introduce herself um, all on her own, and then we'll get into our talk. Thank you, Lucy. So I'm Sharon Fisher. I am a psychiatric nurse practitioner and founder of Nurtured Well, which is a boutique women's mental health practice here in Towson, Maryland. And I am the co-author of Beyond the Egg Timer, Companion Guide Wrapping Babies in Your Mid-30s and Older. And I co-wrote this book with my dear friend, Emma Williams, who is how I found you. She listens to your podcast and sent it to me and said, I think you'd like this and I think you should pitch her. So I did. And here we are. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I I don't think I know Emma either. So I'm just magically finding people now. This is very exciting. So Emma follows your tarot card reader person. <gasps> I love it. Hey, that's a fantastic. Oh, very exciting. Okay, cool. So Sharon, you're in, you said Towson, Maryland. And before we get started, since we are talking about midlife, which I loosely define as ages 35 to 50, are you comfortable sharing how old you are? Absolutely. I am 46. 46. Okay, cool. And so you specialized in a variety of things, but your book is about conception and and sure. fertility our, yeah. in midlife. Our book, right? Our book is basically essentially about becoming a mother in midlife. And I like I like your age range is perfect, right? Because we what we did where this book. Do you want me to delve into like where this came from? Please or? do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So I'm 46. I have a newly minted eight-year-old. She turned eight last week and a five-year-old. And when I was, um, got, got married and started trying to have children, I ran into, we ran into all these obstacles. We just weren't getting pregnant and people kept saying, well, you waited too long. You waited too long. And, you know, there was no, we were never being told we were too old. That was never on the table. And it also just seems so odd because everybody I knew had their kids over 35. And I was actually just turned 34 when we started trying to conceive. Like it wasn't even, it was a year from that sort of, that sort of a line in the sand that they used to have. And I think people are, they're getting a lot better in understanding that 35 is not a fertility cliff. But about 12 years ago, when we were first starting to, you know, conceive, starting to have our family, it was very much in the media everywhere that 35 was this big fertility cliff. Um, And even a lot of health professionals kept using it as this fertility cliff. And there was no scientific data to support that. Emma is a public health researcher. I've been a nurse for 20 years and we couldn't find anything that supported that being a fertility cliff. But more importantly, everyone in our circle of friends are having their kids later uh, after 35. And I also didn't feel like I had waited too long, right? Like I met my husband when I was 30. We got married when I was 33. He wanted to wait six months before we started trying for a baby, which seemed extremely reasonable. So it was kind of like, well, where is this waiting coming from? Um, And that we also saw that there was at that time, things have gotten a little bit better, but not completely. There was a lot of shaming going on. In fact, the National Health Service in the UK actually launched a whole PR program called Get Fertile Britain which was to really motivate women. It was targeted at women, of course, not men, but targeted at women 
to really, you know, don't wait, you, you know, you, you, this is the time now. And it was so, it's so missed the mark in so many ways, A, being, you know, factually not really accurate, but also it was sort of like, well, people aren't necessarily choosing because they, you know, want to go out and have martinis and eat sushi to not have children. It's, you know, the economy is terrible. It takes a lot longer to become financially independent. People, you know, Generation X, we were the first generation to grow up with mass divorce. We're a lot more cautious about who we marry. And there is a lot of evidence saying, you know, the older you are when you marry, the more statistically likely it is the marriage will last. Divorce rates are much higher amongst people who get married in their early to mid-20s, um, which makes sense, right, when we think about it. So it was sort of like, no, nobody's like just playing around here because, you know, I don't know, name some celebrity who had her first kid at 50. Like, these are very real life issues and shaming people into having a child before they are ready, either emotionally, financially, uh, physically, whatever it may be. It's just really quite ridiculous. So we were having dinner celebrating Emma's 40th birthday. She's a little bit older than me. And she's like, I really wish there was a book that supported women in this. And to the next day I called her up and I was like, we're writing this book, we're writing this book. And it was a real labor of love. And so what we do in the book is we have first person narratives from 12 different women who had their first, first child over 35. And I think the oldest in our book was 44 when she had her first child. And we really, it's like some sort of like a qualitative study. We really delve into the reasons people are actually waiting and what the actual experience is like. Um, along with factual information and, and just coping advice, psychological coping advice for the journey. That sounds completely reasonable too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, all of the reasons you just described are like, yeah, of course, everybody's kind of living a different lifestyle now than we were in like the 50s. And, uh, you know, as is the case with most medical research, um, they have to keep up because <laughs> they're, you know, it, it's, uh, I could get into like my opinions about all of this, but it's, it's, it's like half like research based and half like, how are we going to pitch this to the public? How are we going to market this? Right. And uh, my gut, as I was hearing you talk was like, oh, well, of course the UK was doing this. Like, what did you call it? The fertility get fertile I, now. It was called get fertile. Britain was the campaign. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, um, my my like maybe this is the conspiracy theorist in me but uh my gut was like oh because they're trying to get women young women to freeze their eggs so that they can like make money off of that or something which maybe isn't the case but like I distrust anything where they're like hey women get pregnant what and you didn't even mention like environmental factors like I know a lot plenty of my friends are also like it's irresponsible to uh have kids you know when the environment's so up and down and yet you know then life happens and they change their minds and again it's not this like uh spoiled brat just sitting around saying I can have babies whenever I want it's like no there's a lot of legitimate reasons to wait but I I wonder my and I have a hunch do, does your book also include like how the the women in in each of the kind of case studies were treated like what, what kind of like emotional response they receive from their treatment providers as well? Yeah, yeah. So we really go into it. When we did the interviews, we um, did have a set list of questions and, and it delved into, right, like not only like, you know, how, how did you get here, right? Like how did it end up being? But what was interesting is there is a real range um, in treatment, right? So one woman in our book was told like, uh, she got a lot of ageist comments from her OBGYN. And some were kind of actually positive. Some were like, well, you've got the abdomen of a 20-year-old or something. And it's kind of like, I don't, I'm pretty fit. Like, I don't want to brag here, but like, I'm pretty fit. So oftentimes, you know, like, I mean, not like we're here to compare physique, but it's like, I don't know that, you know, necessarily being younger means you have more muscle tone. I mean, it, it might, but I've seen a lot of out-of-shape young people. But anyway, to that, to um, lots of interventions that may not have been necessary, all the way to having home birth, right? Um, and, and it being treated like, and that was sort of the interesting thing to us. There were a lot of midwives and obstetricians that were like, yeah, who cares? Like, it's not really a big deal. Like we get so many women between 35 and 40 having kids like whatever, it's not really a big deal. You're fine, don't worry. Two people being told like, oh, you know, really pressured into it. So it's really, it's very interesting, the range of, of reactions of providers. 
so it's interesting too. We have the book divided into three sections as to like why we were seeing people having children older from these women, right? That we kind of delved out the themes. Um, and one was situations like mine, people who started under 35, but just had infertility issues, right? So then you're just bumped up, right? To people that were just very indecisive, kind of going back to say, like some of your friends that the environment's bad or some people who just had, you know, just really didn't know. I want to be very thoughtful before they just jumped into it. To people where that's just how life landed, you know, maybe you marry someone, get divorced, and then it takes a while to find someone or just whatever, ha what have you. I mean, a lot of people during COVID delayed childbearing, right? Because it was just very uncertain what, what this would mean. So yeah, and so anyways, is that a lot of the women opted, especially in the infertility for much more like complementary and alternative approaches than traditional fertility treatment. Although I think myself and two of the other cases did ultimately end up going in traditional, like not traditional, like Western fertility treatment, but people kind of had a tendency more to the acupuncture and things like that, where I think there's a lot less judgment in general. It's just more about optimizing health and, and wellness than being so attached to a number. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, in addition to all of those kind of like holistic and non-judgmental spaces, the other thing is a lot of times medical providers are making decisions based on insurance pressure. Yeah. And the more you kind of move away from that towards, you know, like Eastern philosophies and, and more holistic care, the, the less I feel like you experience that kind of like, but the insurance company needs me to put this number on this piece of paper. Absolutely. And that's yeah. it's interesting too, because I think that when I work with women, because I work with a lot of women with infertility and I'm doing the mental health piece of it, but I'm really, you know, I'm really stressed the fact that you have this, nobody's very, well, I should say nobody, incredibly few people are truly infertile, right? So you're infertile if for some reason you had to have a hysterectomy, right? You're infertile if you were born without the ability to make sperm for, you know, for some reason, or you had some, you know, Diseases like measles used to sterilize people. People don't really get measles anymore. But, you know, if, if you have all the equipment, then you're fertile, really, until proven otherwise. And so what I have to explain to people is, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't seek fertility treatment if you're having trouble conceiving. But this idea, this label of infertility is strictly, as you said, an insurance-based diagnosis code, so we'll cover the treatment. It's not, you're not actually infertile. And in fact, if you, you know, you get pregnant and then you decide you're one and done, you absolutely must use birth control because even if it took you 10 years and three rounds of IVF to get pregnant, mm -hmm. you know, assuming you have all those pieces, you could easily get pregnant again. There's no reason why you couldn't. So don't think of yourself as infertile. They put that on the paper so they can get paid. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. I have so many questions. <laughs> the first thing I'm wondering is, You've mentioned a few times, like, this isn't really like research based to set the number at 35. Is there a number that uh, is research based that we should kind of be like considering? Um, I feel like a lot of providers say high risk or just like, this is the cutoff for some reason or another. So, right. So again, like I'm not an obstetrician or a midwife, but everything I've read said 40 is when your fertility really, for a female really declines. Men's fertility starts declining in their 20s very slowly and steadily. Mm -hmm. But people often hear like, oh, men are fertile till they die. Well, in theory, that's true. But the sperm quality and mobility and count go down with age. It's just much more subtle, right? Mm -hmm. But for women, there's much more a precipitous drop around 40. And in terms of, you know, and then after 44, it's you, you can get pregnant until you hit menopause, right? But it'd be highly unlikely after 44. In terms of risks, right? Again, that insurance codes, what, you know, typically over 35, they do like to put on your chart advanced maternal age, and there can oftentimes be more testing. What I caution people, right, is A, always look at absolute risk versus relative risk. Mm -hmm. So the relative, you know, relative risk of a 38 year old woman to a 20 year old woman. Yeah, that actually is higher on certain markers, right? But the absolute risk overall is still really low. And I think that there are so many factors that are modifiable in terms of just being your absolute healthiest when you go into, go into pregnancy. So yes, yeah, certain, there are certain outcomes that are, you know, 
statistically more likely in women over 35 and certainly over 40. However, you can reduce your chances of problems by being in great health, not smoking, being active, being in a good weight, good controlled blood sugar, controlled blood pressure, you know, and then like you start to, you know, comparing that woman at 38 who has perfect numbers, runs every day, all those things to a 25 year old who smokes a pack a day and drinks, whose outcomes are going to be better, right? So again, it's a number, it's, it's a number and don't get too crazy, freaked out by it. And I often recommend too, like, don't, if your provider's all crazy, you know, oh my gosh, this and that, simply because of your age, I'd find a new provider, right? It's one thing to be really cautious because you actually do have some kind of risk factor. And there are some certainly things that could be very risky, but for the most part, you know, pregnancy is not a pathology. It's a natural condition. It's, it's a life uh, process, right? So you know, I, I would, I wouldn't see it. That would be a real red flag to me, a provider that was like, Oh my gosh, you're 37. Oh, all these things, which is a very different attitude than like, you know, ACOG recommends over 35, we do X, Y, and C. Like that's a very different way of presenting it than scare tactics. Right. Or shame. Or shame. Right. Like, yeah, yeah you shouldn't have waited so long. And it's like, well, right back to what we were first talking about. Right. <laughs> yeah. I feel like what you just said is really important and there's not enough societal dialogue about self-advocacy within the healthcare system and recognizing that like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you and I work with young mothers in different capacities. A lot of my work as a photographer is showing up after the baby's born or taking the maternity pictures. But even, um, you know, when I was going through it myself and, and in that life space where all of my friends were getting pregnant, it constantly shocked me how few women realize that they don't just have to show up at hospital a and mm. and meet with dr a, a and and stick with it for the term of their pregnancy and and then pediatric care or or you know gynecological care that they have not just rights but the ability to choose the agency to choose and that not every doctor is the right fit for every person. Not every provider is going to treat you in the way that you deserve to be treated. And yeah, so being just recognizing that fact alone of like, you can go and if you feel icky, if you feel like shamed after any appointment at any point in your care, you have the right to say, maybe I'll look somewhere else. And it's not even a judgment on the the quality of the provider it's just sometimes it's not the right fit do you have that a lot where where do you experience that where women are usually kind of like oh well my doctor said you know i i should have done this uh i guess i'm stuck and they just kind of like stay in that abusive relationship for no reason yeah i mean exactly like you said right it's it's about the match right so I don't know that there's, you know, it's not necessarily that the provider is bad, but it's about the match and their approach. And I see that so often. And I'm really passionate about empowering women to really take charge of their birth, because again, it's not an, it's not an unplanned thing. It's not, I mean, pregnancy might be unplanned, but like generally speaking, most people find out in the first trimester that they're pregnant. So that gives you at least six months to figure things out, plan the kind of birth you want to have. And right, express your autonomy, right? Because people view birth so differently, right? Like some of us view it as this really sacred transition. It's a very natural process. Other people view it very much as a medical process. Other people don't have that attachment to it as a sacred uh, transition. They're very happy to just check in and be told what to do and have it very medicalized. And that's fine. I'm here to support people you know, back to like what you said, like getting what you want, but it's very important in my mind to have full and informed consent, right? So if you're suggesting a, what are the stats? Why are you suggesting it? What is the full picture here? Um, but oftentimes, yes, I get so many women who feel pressured into, do, you know, doing X or Y, you know, or being, I love the term, you know, my doctor allowed me, your doctor allowed you. I'm sorry. What, what, like, what, what are you like three and you were allowed to play outside? Like that doesn't even make any sense. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that, that just are, you know, and, and we're going to, you know, obviously 
we have to respect that whoever is caring for us has more expertise in this. That is why they are coming, but it doesn't mean that we don't know anything. And it doesn't mean that we can't, you know, again, this isn't, this isn't a heart attack, right? Where it is like a real medical problem. And you really, you know, I mean, even then I think that you can have autonomy over certain things, but, and I, I will say like, I have had women switch very late in their pregnancies to different providers and they didn't know they could do that. And I'm like, yeah, just call, see if they'll take you, you know? And, and oftentimes it doesn't have to be um, a real adversarial thing. It can simply be like, I've just decided this is the route I want to go. I will say Baltimore is kind of interesting. So Towson is a suburb of Baltimore, but this whole area is very interesting in that we have a very large home birth scene. And so I do get a lot of women um, who choose that route. And there's definitely a lot more autonomy in that route. Just the whole midwifery model, especially the home birth midwifery model is much more about, you know, he, here's here's your informed consent, here are your options, you be in charge of this, because it is, it is the mother and the baby who deliver the baby. It is not anybody else. You might be assisting, you might be actually physically catching the baby, but the mother and the baby deliver the baby. Yeah. I love that. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I just keep thinking back to, um, I had both of my children, uh, through a birth center and the, the care was, was so, nurturing so inform information based you know they they just inform me every step of the way it was very consent based mm-hmm. um you know nobody touches you without like i'm going to touch you now is that okay and then i a couple of years after that actually attended my one of my close friends births you know her support partner wasn't physically up to the task and so i i stepped in and i helped out and it was a hospital birth and you know i'm I have enough friends who have had kids to know like everybody has a different preference and how they choose to birth. But it shocked me when I was in that space, there would be moments when her older male doctor would come in and just start poking around and opening things up without even explaining what he was doing without ever saying like, I'm going to touch you now. And I was just like, what's happening red alert like, yeah. internally and I'm like stay cool stay cool I need to be like supportive of my friends choices but afterwards I was like you know uh because I remember after like kind of processing with her and she was like I had no idea what was going on I was kind of like in my own space and I was like well just so you know he did you know this this and this I asked questions like why are you doing that and I made sure that like the information was at least out there but yeah it, it's uh it's shocking to me how little women realize that they can advocate for themselves and they can be treated with respect and um and actual care as opposed to just like pregnancy and childbirth is not a pathology and yet so many providers treat it as such and are just like well I'm I'm the expert I'm gonna start poking around it's like no that's that's my body I get to call the shots here yeah it's really you know um taking back our power without giving all the secrets from your book away, if you could share like one tidbit that you feel like the general public really should know, and they just aren't getting this, this message from your book, what, what do you think the general public should know about fertility and, and choosing to have children at this age? Yeah, I mean, we really wanted the book to be a space of validation. And so I think that's what I would say, like, you're not alone in this. There's actually, I mean, throughout millennium, women had babies until they hit menopause. So it used to be very common to have babies older, typically wouldn't be your first, but this is not a new phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And that more importantly, there's nothing your desire to be as emotionally, physically, intellectually, and financially stable as possible speaks to how much you value motherhood and value your children. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I wish we had more of that language just in general around motherhood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so you also work with a lot of women who are going through lots of other body changes during this 35 to 50 year span as well. Can you tell me a little bit more about that part of your, of your work? 
Yeah, and it's so funny because we actually just did a workshop on perimenopause, which is this is this is happening in this age range, right? The average age of perimenopause is 47. However, it can start 10 years before menopause. So there are women definitely in their young 40s who are experiencing the symptoms. A woman, you know, menopause in your late 40s would be considered a little bit early, but there are definitely that happens. And then you could be almost in your late 30s, you know, not as common, but Definitely perimenopause starts in your forties for sure. And it's like, now, although I was so thrilled. So we did our first perimenopause workshop on Sunday and the Sunday New York times magazine uh, cover story was on menopause. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so fortuitous. Um, so it's starting to get talked about, I guess. So perimenopause, right, is, is the transition to menopause. Menopause is a moment in time. It is when you have had 12 months of no periods and there's no other reason for that. So it's literally just like a moment in time, a line in the sand. And then, so you're, you know, you're at your, your, you hit puberty, you're in your reproductive years, you go into early perimenopause, which is when your cycles are, you have two cycles that are more than, more than a 10 days difference in length. And it's 10 months. I think that's right. I'd have to double check that. That's early menopause. Late menopause is when there's more than 60 days between the cycle in a 10 month period that I know for sure. And once you hit late menopause, menopause is one to three years away. And then you hit menopause and then everything after that is post-menopause, right? And women are living so much longer. At the turn of the century, we lived to about 50, 55. Now we can live, I think, to like late 70s, early 80s is the average age. I mean, many people live past that, of course. So it's like, it's exciting, right? Because it's like this whole second half of your life. Um, But again, this is something where the establishment has taken away women's power because in our country, you know, we're put out to pasture. It means you're no longer vital. You're no longer fertile. You're no longer seen. Whereas in other countries such as Japan, you know, menopause is kind of like, I forget, they have a special term for it. That's, I might get this wrong, but I think it's sort of like second birth or second spring or something like that, which I love, right? It's like embraced more, right? And they're a lot less symptomatic, but what I do want your listeners to understand is that a lot of that feeling of like wanting to blow up your life in your forties or that rage that comes on a lot of that is actually perimenopause. And there's both physiological changes that are happening when your, your hormones, like overall estrogen is going down as is progesterone, but it doesn't go down steadily. And so if we think about our normal menstrual cycle, right, where there's like a raise and then a lowering and then a raise, and that we might feel different during parts of our cycle because those hormones are different. It's consistent, right? We can see where that's going. During perimenopause, these hormones just go haywire. They're all like, they're literally all over the map, which is why like there's no predictability and you feel like you just wanna like, you know, crawl out of your skin half the time. So some really, and estrogen is, um, we have receptors almost everywhere. We have a lot of estrogen receptors in our brain. We have a lot of estrogen receptors in our brain. And so that is part of why we can, women are two to four times more likely to be depressed during this period than any other period in their life. Um, If you have a history of postpartum depression, you're more at risk for it. Brain fog and verbal memory issues are very real. They are documented something somewhere upwards of 70% of women report that they just have more trouble keeping things organized, keeping track of things. Over 50% of women will report word finding difficulty. And we know that structurally the hippocampus, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the ACC, all parts of our brain that work in verbal memory are actually rich in estrogen receptors. So there's less estrogen stimulating them. So there's a real, very real reason for this. other, you can have joint pain. Of course, we all know skin changes, hair changes. There's a decrease in collagen. There can be an increase in stress hormones, which is part of why we get a little thicker around the middle. I also just feel more anxiety and edgy sleep issues for real. And if we're not sleeping, then that will make everything worse. So all of these symptoms are, are very real. Um, the big ones I hear about are just the rage or just a poor mood or the memory and word finding. See, I'm, I'm in it. So I'm struggling. <laughs> um, the brain fog. A lot of people think they have ADHD at this point in their life and that they probably don't, but it feels mm-hmm. that way. The good news is once you, you know, within a year or two of menopause, things even out. 
But this is also the time in our lives where we're so busy, right? Like we have parents who are aging, we have kids at home still. If you're like me or had your kids after 35, they're little kids, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's very busy. We're either at the height of our career, which is demanding, or if you've been staying home with kids, you might be going back into the workforce, which is really scary and demanding. And for people who got married in their 20s, you know, they're like 20 years into their relationship. And that can be, it can either be wonderful and rich, or it can be really challenging, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, really questioning and taking stock of everything. So it's a really important and again, miss, you know, misunderstood, underappreciated phase of life when it is, when it does show up, it's always in these like stupid sitcom-y kind of ways, which is like what we did to birth too, right? Like if you look at birth, in, in the media, it's a woman oh. screaming. And, and it's like, I didn't scream at all during any of my births. Like, it was very peaceful. James Taylor was playing. <laughs> like, nothing, you know. So it's like, that doesn't, you know, it's the same thing for menopause. It's supposed to be, oh, all these hot flashes. And then you're just, you know, and it's like, no, this is a real time of rebirth. And we should, it's also a time where we need more tenderness and care. And we're more vulnerable. And we need people to be sensitive to us, not, you know, expect more from us or mock us. And, you know, we can't control what other people do to us. So we need to own that and say, you know, I'm taking things slower. I'm prioritizing my sleep. I'm prioritizing my self-care and self-care, of course, is not manicures. It is making sure you have mental health. It is saying no good boundaries, uh, all that. Yeah. (laughs) I, I kind of operate. So I'm 40 and for the past, I want to say four to five years now, uh, which sounds like it is on the earlier side. I've kind of come up in, into this phase of life where it feels like perimenopause is just a curse word. Uh, <laughs> because because here's what I've experienced and and tell me if you know if you're seeing this with a lot of women. You hit an age where it's kind of like all the lights all the engine lights came on at once. Like, mm. you know, you're just kind of like things don't feel the same this thing is funky. This other thing's kind of wacky. Like I thought I knew my body and now all of a sudden things are going weird and you go to the doctor looking for answers. And a lot of providers just kind of look at you and say like, "Eh, you're in that age. Things go crazy. Who knows? And it's always kind of just like, like that's perimenopause, but I'm I'm like, like, why does nobody have the answers for this? And, and I understand, you know, when you've had when you're a person who has a body that's had a period for the past 20 years or so, you, you, you're you used to changes happening cyclically, right? Like yeah. you're used to hormone surges. You're used to even, even like I, I have an IUD. I don't, I don't get a period anymore, but I'm so like programmed to kind of like ride the flow of a month that mm-hmm. even knowing like my body's not going to respond the same way it did. 10 years ago, I can kind of explain away things that happen in that cyclical pattern. Like, oh, this is my anxiety week. Probably it would have been a PMS week, but uh, since I don't actually get a period, it's just kind of a weird flux of other feelings. So because of that self-knowledge, I was able to go to the doctor and say, hey, you know, these other check engine lights that are on, they're coming up every month around the same time is there a correlation? And even like my more like uh woo kind of like holistic doctors were like, maybe. <laughs> and that was the best answer I got, you know, like a billion blood tests and ultrasounds and other tests later, they were just kind of like, I don't know, see if this does anything. And if it doesn't try other stuff, like you're at the end of our kind of like research baseline now. Yeah. Is that what perimenopause is? <laughs> or I have has that to expression, be? All the, all the check engine lights come on. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it basically is, right? Because there's so many changes and your body's really adjusting. And if we think about how, you know, we think about um, reproductive hormones is, is oftentimes people think about them s- simply in the reproductive tract, right? In the ovaries and the uterus, but they start in your brain, right? So you have a hypothalamus pituitary, they're in your brain, adrenal access, that's like your stress hormones. You have a hypothalamus pituitary ovarian access, and you have your um, 
thyroid, right? And the thyroid's getting wacky around this time too, because all of these things interact and interconnect. And so, right. I mean, it's completely related. And I think it does like, there's such a dearth of knowledge. It's really problematic. And it's fascinating to me too. It's like people just haven't prioritized studying this. A lot of providers are not trained in it. Um, you can go on, it's called the North American Menopause Society, which comes at things much more from a Western medicine perspective. But at least, you know, people, they have a list of providers so you can put in your zip code and they'll give you providers within, you know, a radius. Um, at least, you know, they're at least studying it and reading about it and caring about it, right? But it is, it's far and few between. And even, right, like you said it too, in the more alternative world, it still is. So it's, but yeah, it's just, it's enormous. And that's where I, I really am just an advocate of really just going slower, doing less, taking better care of yourself. It's okay. It's like, okay, we, we put in the work. It's okay to like chill out now a little bit. And um, the good news is like once you're a year or so into menopause thing, people usually report feeling much better because everything's just flat flatlining at that point. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So do you have like a toolbox of, of uh, tips for women who are in these like wild west years of perimenopause? <laughs> like besides just, you know, emotion, setting emotional boundaries, setting, you know, take prioritizing rest. And uh, like you said, self-care, that's not just getting Manny petties, but also like doing the deeper inner work. What, what do you see that are trends coming up for, for women that you work with and also like what what's in your toolbox what do you recommend yeah so I think first and foremost really like just radical acceptance that it's happening because if we try to fight it it's still happening and then we're wasting a lot of energy in the fight so really embracing it like and that doesn't mean that you don't take active steps to feel better I would say like from a medication standpoint, Pristique, which is an SNRI has been shown to really help with hot flashes and certainly any of the antidepressants, it's an antidepressant. So it can help with any of the depression, it helps with anxiety, any other rage, and, and really any of the antidepressants could be useful at this period of time, but that one has been tested uh, for hot flashes as well, which could be really useful. Hormone replacement therapy, I haven't read the New York Times article yet, but people are telling me they are finally clarifying it for people. So that is really, really good. But it got such a bad rap and it really is so useful. And I would argue if you are at risk for Alzheimer's, it is really critical, I think, um, because one thing, there have been small studies that show that women who take hormone replacement therapy during perimenopause have reduced amyloid plaques. And amyloid plaques, of course, is what's found in people with Alzheimer's in their brain. So hormone replacement therapy, if you're under 60 and you haven't had endometrial cancer or you don't have a first degree relative can go wonders to help easing you into this. And I wouldn't be afraid of it. I don't know a ton about, you know, like the bioidenticals and the pellets and things like that. I don't know enough about them one way or the other, but that is something that people tend to like in terms of sleep. This kind of sounds silly, but sleeping with one foot out of the covers and one foot in the covers can help. I guess it just balances you out. But that's, that's basically, you know, what I would have in terms of like brain fog and memory. I, I like to do a thing where you really do need to write everything down and accepting that and just being really like cool with that. I used to always be able to just go without, like I would remember appointments and stuff. I not only write everything down, but at the beginning of the week, I review my whole week and I make sure that I'm not over scheduling because I'm like a terrible over scheduler. But actually, if I see it on paper, it's like, no, I can't go to four different stores, see 10 patients and make a homemade dinner. Like something has to get there, right? Like it's not going to be, it's not workable. Um, but not having as much mental load can definitely help with some of the feeling scatterbrained. Um, that's true for everyone. Yeah, because perimenopause is such a, vaguely defined time in people's lives like it sounds like there is a like from a from a putting things on paper for insurance purposes there is like an actual like standard that is okay now we're going to say that they're in pending perimenopause because periods have acted x y and z uh but outside of that there's this weird phase of 10 years potentially that it just kind of is going wacky right and so 
how would a person know or what symptoms should they look for to get to the point where they are no longer just saying like accepting the wacky and are kind of saying, okay, there are resources available for me now. Maybe hormone replacement therapy is something to take more seriously at this point. Um, maybe some of these other treatments, it's time. Like yeah. how, how do we, there's not a lot of messaging on like, what's, what's the point, the tipping point for that? Yeah, I think it's, I think it goes back to like how much of your daily life is disrupted by your symptoms. Mm-hmm. And symptoms being strictly like period related or like, if you're just having like funky moods, yeah, is, well, is it so- time? So I think that's the thing to understand, right? Like when once perimenopause hits, you're not going to necessarily see that regularity in which I know like the third week of the month, I'm always more anxious, right? Or two days before my period, I'm all, which is always going to be the fourth week of the month. I know these two days I'm going to be exhausted, right? Like that's why I think it's so crazy making. And so I think like really take, like taking a log of, you know, how am I feeling how do my joints feel? How is my memory? Like, where am I struggling the most? And then targeting that. So I think if it really is more of a depression and, um, or anxiety issue, seeing a mental health specialist, but seeing one that probably understands perimenopause, it may not necessarily change the medication choice. Although I do, you know, recommend the SNRIs in that class, but, you know, can understand the con because it's not just even when you're getting a medicine, it's, not, it's the context of being given it, right? Like, so it's understanding the whole picture, right? Um, and understanding that struggle. I think, um, so targeting that psychotherapy, I think can be incredibly helpful because again, this is a time of transition. And so having you help someone help you through that transition and finding meaning in it, which is really what the crux of all the different types of psychotherapies are about, can be so useful. Oh, the biggest one I think, and probably will appeal to your, your listenership, is really like leaning hard on social support, your good circle of friends. I think that's so important. And, you know, what I always find astounding is when I meet women in their 40s who like, they'll talk about having friends, but the more you hear about them, it's like, they're more like frenemies, you know, and they just kind of come up with all this weird stuff. And I'm like, why are you doing this? Like, I, I let that go when I was in my twenties. Right. Like, so I always say like your, your good friends or your good family that supports you, right. Are the people that you can let your hair down around that you can be yourself that embrace you for that, that appreciate you for that, that don't belittle you. And that, you know, Linus says to me is always like, if you get a promotion at work, what's your friend's response? But it's like, that's so awesome. That's amazing. That's great. That's a good friend. If it's like, you know, some snide remark, right? Well, now you're really in for it, right? Now, now you're working all the time. Well, that's great, but you're going to have to work weekends now. Then that's not, that's not, that might be somebody you need to cut, right? Because, and really like, this is the time to do it. Like, don't put up with all this BS. So social support isn't the moms from soccer that everybody gets together every Sunday because it's what you do when you are invited unless they really are your people, your, your support are your people, your girls, your late, your women friends, um, right. It's your cheerleaders. It's your cheerleaders. Yeah. Really analyze it and lean on them, you know, and because sometimes just knowing you're not alone in it is really helpful. Yeah. That's huge. You mentioned a couple of different kinds of providers and a couple of different kinds of treatment. Is there like a title of provider that like is really good at kind of almost like a, a perimenopause social worker. <laughs> so like, be amazing. <laughs> I know. I wish there was like a doula for this, right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe somebody should jump on that. Mm-hmm. Oh doula. Yeah. Somebody, cause I, I guess my question is like, if I'm thinking, okay, it's time to like pull the trigger and look into hormone replacement therapy. Who do I go to? Do I go to my PCP? Do I go to my gynecologist? Do I go? I mean, I, I wouldn't go to like a a non-psychiatrist, but like would a psych, psychiatric therapist, like somebody who can prescribe meds to help with that? Like who is the, who's the person? Who do you go right, to? So for, so for HRT, it would either be your gynecologist, a midwife or a women's health nurse practitioner, right? Okay. That's, that's who would do that. And in terms of what I often encourage people to do is to, when you're finding a provider, ask them what their experience is in treating perimenopause and what their approach is. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that'll give you a lot of insight, much like when we're looking for someone to, when we're pregnant, right? What is your approach? What is your experience? And just making sure it resonates with you. Um, you can look on the NAMS list, but not everybody who's knowledgeable is going to be on that list per se, right? Because not everybody, you know, not everybody goes for certifications and things like that for various reasons. I think for the mental health piece, I would go to a psychiatric nurse practitioner or a psychiatrist. But one, again, what's your experience treating women during this, this, this life period? And like, what's your, what is your training? Like, where are you, what, what do you do to stay current with it? Because I've also heard a lot of people, you know, much like perinatal psychiatry, I'll meet a lot of people say, oh yeah, I do that. And I'm like, really? Okay. So when, what was the last CEU you did in that? <laughs> oh, we had a semester in school on it. I'm like, okay, but that was 10 years ago. <laughs> like if you really, cause it's not just knowing what, looking up what med is safe, it's knowing all the research. How did we make that decision? But also the context, what are the other things a woman is going through during this period? So, right. What is your, you know, how do you, what is your approach? How do you learn about it? How are you staying current? Yeah. I, um, maybe this is going to date me, but I already said how old I am. So most of my kind of peripheral knowledge of HRT and the bioidentical, what did you, what was it called? Bioidentical? The bioidentical hormones, bioidentical. Yeah. There's also pellets. I don't exactly know how they're different, but yeah. So, so most of my, again, peripheral knowledge. Suzanne Summers? Are you going there? That's exactly what I was going to say. I was literally going to say was because of Suzanne Summers from the nineties. Yeah. Um, one, please tell me that like things have advanced since then because she got a really bad rep. There was a lot of information flying around in the nineties that maybe doesn't even feel trustworthy at this point. And two, do you find that that's still floating around these kind of like ideas based on something that was, I was going to say 20 years ago, but nineties were 30 years ago, if not more. <laughs> so tell me what, what are you seeing with that? Yeah, there's still so much misinformation. Like, cause I'll get clients where I'm like, you should have talked to your GYN about HRT. And they're like, oh, no, I'll get cancer. And I'm like, please talk to them. You're, you have to get cancer. Um, so please talk to them. Um, yeah, I think there's still so much misinformation. I mean, I don't prescribe them, so I can't speak to, you know, what's new in them or that kind of thing. But um, I do think finding an eligible provider and definitely exploring for women under the age of 60, they're generally considered safe. Mm-hmm. So, and that's really what hitting those symptoms. Have you um, anecdotally seen that they make a positive impact and difference? Oh yeah. I have, I don't use them myself yet, but um, I have a lot of clients that, that do, and they just feel so much better. They feel so much better. And there's also like, again, targeting symptoms, right? Because if you're finding like overall, you feel okay, but there's a lot of vaginal dryness, then maybe like a topical estrogen supplement, right? And then it's not really going throughout your whole body. Yeah. Lower libido during this period is really normal too. Actually, I should have mentioned that. So I had interviewed uh, the director of my birth center um, back in season one, and she also said higher libido is also very common. Do you see a lot of that? Yeah. So um, yeah, it's funny. You see both. Um, You definitely see both. I think, and my theory, I'd be curious, I should go back and listen to that episode. I'd be really curious on her. My theory on that is like, you're, you're, you're at your end of your fertility. So your eggs are like, cause twins naturally occurring twins are a higher in older women, not mm-hmm. high enough that if you're terrified of having twins, you shouldn't try to get pregnant, but <laughs> it is statistically higher in women over 35 to have um, fraternal twins without sans fertility treatment. Like if you take that out of the equation, it's still higher because your ovaries just shoot out more eggs. It's like one more time. Come on, we're at, we're at the end game here. Let's, let's keep, keep, keep the population going. So I could see that. I could also see like you, for a lot of us, we feel better about ourselves during this period. Like I know my body positivity has never been higher. Right. Um, and I look back at pictures of when I was like 20 and I like thought I was fat and I was like a size four and I'm like, oh, wow, <laughs> that was a shame. I wasted all that time, you know, being critical of myself. Um, so I could see that as well. Right. Being more comfortable with yourself, your body, being more comfortable knowing what to ask for in bed, because um, I get a lot of women. Right. Because yeah, we in the psychiatric medication world, that's no secret. A lot of the med- medications we prescribe can cause sexual dysfunction. So I always ask my clients about that. And a lot of times I'll, I'll get like, you know, it's this whole discussion that goes beyond that because it's very clear that they have never really asked for what they wanted. 
and felt mm-hmm. comfortable doing that. And then therefore don't have a lot of sexual satisfaction. And it's like, well, that's a whole other problem. But I think as you get older, you just get a lot more confident and say like, no, this is what I like. Touch me here. Don't touch me there. So I could see that for sure. I mean, I think like, I think when they do surveys and studies, it's more the lower libido that comes up, but, and I will say men go through a menopause too of sorts and their libido can lower during this time too. So interesting. And is, does the age match? Is it a different uh, age range? around the same I don't know exactly I think it's around the same and I think there's just a lowering of testosterone part part of the function of women of whites lowers testosterone lowers in relation to estrogen mm-hmm. that uh, makes sense yeah 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 so and I mean it, it things don't happen in a vacuum right like right. estrogen and testosterone are one piece but there's also all the other life factors that are happening at the same time so that's what we explore on this podcast is all of the ways that yeah. life th- throws you a curveball around this age range okay so last two questions one is, I ask everybody on my podcast this if you could go back to younger Sharon and share some wisdom with her that you wish she would have known what do you wish you could share I think don't worry it's all gonna work out mm-hmm. would she have heard that god no <laughs> but maybe maybe it would have been a little bit like a lighthouse where like in those lower moments you know you could go back to it and say oh okay it does work out I get the the spoiler at the end it's gonna it's gonna be fine you're gonna get all the things you want you're going to have the life you want. I love that. Oh, that's good. Cool. So my last question is a chance for you to kind of share whatever you need to share. I'd love for my listeners to know how they can follow you. You have any promotional things you want to share, obviously talk about your book, but also if you've got any other workshops coming up or, or other things like that. Great. Thank you. So yeah, definitely Beyond the Egg Timer, companion guide for having babies in your mid thirties and older. You can find it on Amazon, Kindle or um, the soft cover. So definitely appreciate that. My website is nurtured-well.com, N-U-R-T-U-R-E-D-well, W-E-L-L.com. We are having a second perimenopause workshop, but it's going to be virtual. So we got so many requests for people who we know like around the country or like, oh, I wish I could come. So we are doing a virtual one this spring. We should have the date for that out soon. Um, but you can hop over to my website, shoot me an email and I'll put you on the mailing list for that at least. And we do retreats too. We did a women's reset retreat this past fall. We're doing another one this coming fall and that's for women of all ages. We use nature informed therapy, just have a wonderful time. And I'm on Instagram. It's at beyond underscore the underscore egg timer, egg underscore timer underscore. I don't post a ton, but please follow me. Maybe I'll start posting more if if people uh, follow me. I'm not the best Instagrammer. And we have Nurtured Well as a Facebook page. You can definitely hop on there. And I blog about every week. So there's all sorts of stuff coming out. So yeah, definitely connect. And if you're in the, if you're in Maryland, uh, we do provide mental health services um, in person and also online. Very exciting. Thank you so much for all of this information. It was really, really helpful. And I think um, a lot of my listeners will, will respond to it. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks so much for the opportunity. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Midlife Plot Twists. Be sure to hit subscribe and check back monthly for each new episode. Since monthly podcasts don't automatically download, you can also follow me on Instagram at Lucy Baber and Facebook at Lucy Baber Photography to be the first to know when each new episode is released.